How do big personalities and regional tribalism affect key authors' rights issues in the last few decades of 20th century New Zealand? And how did a new and successful young writer find herself in the middle of it all? I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Fiona Kidman is a New Zealand writer and writing teacher who has been widely published and recognised at home and abroad. Still writing, her latest book, This Mortal Boy, was released this year. In the 70s, as a young and newly successful author, Fiona found herself at the heart of the sometimes caustic and cavalier operations of Penn New Zealand. She tells Alison Gray how it was she first became involved. I was just really starting to get, to get myself together as a writer. I had been writing for quite a long time. And I actually can't remember how, how I made my initial contacts, wow. but I was becoming, I came, became you know, high profile very quickly because I won a, a major television writing competition, the Naya Marsh Award in 1971. And so I think, I think people probably got in touch with me a little bit. And I, yeah, I think I, I must have submitted some work to Ian Cross, and I think that I know that he was instrumental yeah. in getting me onto the committee. And he invited me along to, to come to the committee and said he was felt sure that I'd really feel good, feel good about working on the committee. And then he said, I got there and he, we had this meeting, and he said, Oh, and of course, by the way, did I tell you that Dora's just retired <laughs> as the secretary, and I think you'll make a really good secretary. <laughs> Dora gave me a cardboard carton of Penn's papers and there was Penn's entire history that I was aware of in this cardboard carton. I don't know, I've never, I'm not sure whether there may have been earlier stuff that had been lodged in the Turnbull. Right. But at that stage there was just this carton of rough looking bits and pieces of paper and that was Penn. <laughs> and I was, it was given to me. It's certainly in the Turnbull now. Because I, I ultimately gave everything I had about Penn to the Turnbull. Mm. Uh, who else was on that committee with you? It was Ian, of course. And Ian was so, such a full-on person that it's hard to, you know, in those days, we were so tremendously in awe of him that he sort of seemed to be all of it in a way. <laughs> but there was him, there was Beebe, uh -huh. there was Rolly Habib. Oh, yes. Dora Somerville herself, of course. Um, Alistair Campbell. Oh, right. Um, because we were meeting then in the NZCER rooms where we continued to meet for quite a few years afterwards. I know it was about a year after I became the secretary that I met Loris. Oh, right. in about 1973. And she came onto the committee shortly after that. And we're a very tight group, really, sort of. Oh, Harry Orsman. Oh, right. Jean Watson, when was she, she involved? A bit later. I think she would have been off the committee right, by then. by then, yeah. And what was the kind of issues that you had to deal with? Well, it was very soon after the author's lending right had been introduced, right. so mm -hmm. a lot of it was sorting the sorting out of those issues. 
Ian Cross, there was Neve of Clark McKenna had been mm -hmm. had left not long beforehand to go up north. And there was always a bit of a dispute, I suppose, or a little bit of an issue in the year about who had really been responsible for for, for introducing the author's lending right. Ian Cross, in a way, in a sense, made his reputation a little bit on it. Neva always said that it was she who'd actually done the donkey work, but <laughs> I didn't know about that. I didn't yeah. really sort of care particularly, but I know that was how it was implemented was, was, was a prime thing. There weren't, to be absolutely truthful, there weren't a lot of other issues at the, at the time. Yeah, mostly and, about income and... Yeah, not really. That came later. I think that, that, that we didn't talk much like that. I think the real issues about income happened around about 1980-81 when Tony Simpson came on and I became the president. Were there kind of local Wellington things or was it mainly that you, because you were still a national We were body, still the you? whole national yeah. body. The big issues and the ones that we seemed to spend a lot of time talking about was how to keep Auckland in order. <laughs> I mean, I can look back and say, well, of course, there were some issues for Auckland. They would send us, there'd be things about, oh, I don't know, about who was represented in anthologies and things like that. Oh, right, um, yeah. There was a lot of literary tribalism, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a very strong group in, um, in Dunedin. Uh, to, to answer your question about whether there was specific Wellington things, no, I don't think so. Although right. all the social life of Penn really seemed to operate around Wellington, but there was Auckland was had a had a branch, and Dunedin had a branch which had O. E. Middleton and mm -hmm. Ruth Dallas, mm -hmm. and there was again there were sort of things that would come up, like for instance, a little bit later in the seventies, I became the editor of. Um, the writing program, what's now that Ruth Todd and Moran oh, yes, do, and, yes. and Ross Stevens and Elizabeth Alley had been my successors, but in that program, and Owen Middleton was absolutely outraged because he felt that it should be rotating around the regions in New Zealand, and. I was this woman who was this power-hungry, crazy woman who had, who was ensconced in pen and was using my position to, to, to take the jobs, that, you know, to, to and there were lots of, there was quite a lot of him writing to pen about what a bad person I was and so forth. It's quite personal. Oh yeah, yes it was. But I think we were fairly cavalier. I mean, I think there probably were real issues. I think we were probably quite cavalier, and we always used to end up at the um, Abel Tasman or the, or the um, Brunswick Arms yes, at yes. the end of the day, and really sort of drink for the rest of the day. <laughs> that sounds um, like a good yeah, tradition. Yeah, yeah, and it was, I can't remember the order in which people came in, but in those years there was a sort of rotation of people like Bill Manhai was on it, for a period of time in, in that mid-70s oh. area, and there was um, Sam Hunt was on oh. it, Jack Lazenby, and I can't, I really can't remember. That was it's quite a, colourful characters, though. Oh, they were colourful. It was very colourful, and we were very egocentric, and we were very <laughs> alcoholic. <laughs> uh, and mm. I was at a funny, I was at a funeral about two days ago, and I saw Tui Shadbolt there, 
um, Morris and Gillian's daughter. And the last time I'd seen her had been out at a party at Sam Hunt's when we had the Christmas party out there. That was the most huge, debauched sort of thing. And Tui spoke beautifully and very movingly at a funeral. And she talked about how she'd been able to tell this person who died about literary feuds and so forth. And I thought, I wondered if she remembered that she herself that day had been the subject of a dispute because she was supposed to have done something wrong, which she hadn't done at all, poor child. So what kind of personalities were there in feuds? What were they? stories in the feuds when they in the 70s were they then apart from Auckland Wellington that was that was, that was really the nub of it mm. yeah mm. Mm. Um, I feel embarrassed not to be able to tell you what we really talked about yeah. but yeah, but I didn't feel it was very issue driven at no, the time no I mean it would be Carl Stead would be turning up at the the annual general meeting year after year to, to rant about how you know, people had, were not represented in the anthologies mm. and it was sort of Penn's fault and and, and there'd be this, these sorts of quarrels and, and Carl would storm off into the night and <laughs> so forth and that sort of stuff. That, but yeah. I, I mean, yeah. if I'm a bit embarrassed about how little I remember of that now, I suppose what I, what I would say jumping ahead is that really to me the turning point was in the 1980s because or 1980, because by that time Tony Simpson had come on board and he was very clear, you know, that we'd done this thing about the, the, the lending right and that was good and we'd sort of looked after ourselves and issues of income and so forth. And there are other, other things that we should be thinking about. Um, he thought we should act more as a sort of a union. Union, right, so yeah, yeah. employment. Um, employment issues, issues and so and forth. Mm. Also in the 1970s there had been, oh yes, there was a huge dispute, of course. And Ian Cross and I stopped talking to each other for some years. And that was over the setting up of the Writers Guild as a separate body from Penn. You know, script writing was becoming yeah a major deal and we needed to negotiate you know it was different from books it was very clear that television um, and radio required some sort of quite separate negotiation Ian Cross said he thought we should set up the Writers Guild of course how could I have forgotten mm. this and Michael Noonan was on, oh, on yes. pen then and he was a prime mover towards mm. setting up a Writers Guild Ray Grover had been was was on it too, and Ray was the president that succeeded Ian Cross. When the guild started, we said we wanted compulsory unionism, and the fury that went with that, and Beeb, who was a good friend of Ian's and mine until till his death really, but but in the, over that he and Ian Cross sided absolutely on the side that there shouldn't be compulsory unionism. And the rest of us who were involved in it did. I think we've had a point, I think we've mm. had some points. Mm. So anyway, the Guild um, went off to one side and did their thing. And I was a founder member and a founder negotiator for the them. I did the first ever um, negotiation with both radio and television, uh -huh. along with mm -hmm. Mike Noonan and 
Tony Isaacs and Keith Aberdeen and all that crowd mm -hmm. of people. But I did remain in Penn. I went through a bit of a down patch in the late 70s as a result of this because because it had become quite feudal. Mm. Alistair Campbell came on as the president after Ray, I think. I don't think I think Alistair would have been quite happy to have seen me out of it. But I hung on in and there was a guy called Earl Spencer, who's dead now, who was who was in television and was connected with the Guild, and I disliked him intensely. He was a bit of a sleazy character. He wanted to be the next president of Penn after Ray. I became deeply concerned about that because I knew about some of the things that he got up to. I was also fairly convinced that if he got in, we would go in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And actually I did understand the issues in the sense that we had a guild and whether some of the people involved in the guild believed in, in Penn believed in what the guild did or not, that was, that was one thing. Mm -hmm. But the things that were important to Penn, like the author's lending mm -hmm. right and so forth, still, and copyright, because yes. we did talk about copyright, I guess that's mm -hmm. what we did talk about a bit too. Um, we're becoming more aware of copyright issues again because of, of the media, the growing sort of yes. influence of the mm. media. And I decided that I was probably better known than Earl Spencer <laughs> and that I would actually stand against him. Uh -huh. And he withdrew. I became the president and I'd had a very clear message from Tony Simpson that he would support me if I did become the president of Penn. And that's when I think that we became far more involved in right. scales of payment and so forth. We made various statements in which we took a much stronger line, mm. I think, on some matters. We became more political. Uh, oh, now what was it that Muldoon was so angry with me about? Ah, I know what it was. The thing that I did, which I wa because I wanted to change what had happened, what this Auckland thing, this huge mm. division, and the that's right. The, the the focus of all that discontent was representation of Penn on the literature committee. Right. Okay. And they said that we always put our mates in, and. Because in those days, the Literature Committee consisted of six people, and Penn had two nominees. And they said, you always put your mates on, and it's always Wellington people. And what I introduced was a system of voting for... Um, oh, right, for the representatives. Yeah, for the yes. representatives, yeah. And I consider, considered at the time that was my single biggest achievement. Because it did mean that there was representation out of Wellington, and it was actually done fairly and democratically, and people had the opportunity to put their names forward. And one of the first people on was Carl Stead, and that was fine. Mm. Um, I mean, at that stage, I didn't have a, I didn't have any personal beef mm. with Carl, and B, no matter who it had been, I was quite determined that that process would work. So it was after that it just coincided with the um, Waikato game, cancellation of the Waikato oh, game. Yeah. And Muldoon, it, these, these appointments had to go to, um, to Cabinet, and Muldoon said he wouldn't have stead on.
and I stood my ground and we argued and argued and argued about this and this is one of the things that I think makes me a little sad when I think of what happened later on is that Carl very conveniently forgot that, that I stood up for him and Hyatt, Alan Hyatt was the Minister for the Arts then and he called me into the, his office and he said there was any way that he could persuade me to change his mind because the Prime Minister saw, saw me, his words were, as an intransigent, an, an intransigent young woman who should be sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't. I Not didn't. Good. And in the end a compromise was reached under which Carl was allowed to serve out his term but he couldn't be re-elected or something like that. In the end, I think he did maybe serve out two terms, because in that period, the Labour government came right, in again. Right. Uh, Carl has referred to this dispute with Muldoon and the odd place or two, without ever any, ever ever having any reference or acknowledgement to to what I, my part in that. Mm. So there, yeah, that was interesting. Yes, it yeah. was. And so it was becoming more political and oh, more, yes. more powerful. And another thing that mm. Tony and I did was when Paul Chase was shot, we made a statement about a human rights statement about oh. it. And some members resigned because they felt that we'd become too political and we shouldn't be involved, Penn shouldn't be involved in this sort of thing. I suppose that the whole business of the tour happening mm. during the time that I was president of, of Penn that we were, all, we were being politicised regardless mm -hmm. because people were taking personal political stands. Mm. So in lots of ways it was easier for me to make some sort of political commitment then. Yes, mm. it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, or to change yeah. Penn's direction. Yeah. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. Now let's return to Fiona, who was about to find herself in the middle of the most public and bitter writers' dispute of the time. And what about the famous London flat? Oh, the famous London, London flat. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really sad business mm. to me. I think the whole thing was hugely sad. One of the big events for Penn, wasn't it? It was a huge event. It didn't end well, I think. One of the huge personal regrets that I've got is that that Loris and I copped the shitters that we are for for the thing being sold. Once we had made our protest about the way Carl had behaved over it, 
we both shut up, and that's easy to forget. Mm -hmm. The sale of it was... I mean, it may have been useful to some writers, and that's something I have to acknowledge. But its actual sale was done by a fundamentalist Christian minister for the arts. Mm -hmm. The only visible thing that he could seize on to do to overturn something in the Labour government. It wasn't that part of it. It was not to do with Loris and me at all. And there were some who would say how naive we were to say that the, think that there might not be dreadful consequences of having spoken out. But that brings me back to the nub of the whole argument at the beginning. I couldn't ever say that I regret having spoken mm. out about what to me was a totally deceitful thing. To give you my version of it very briefly, because it's documented in, mm. at great length, and that all the documentation is in the Alexander Turnbull Library, so that anybody who wants to have a look at the sequence of events and the letters that were written over that period, it's all there to look at. But I had heard quite accidentally of the property on, um, on the island near Pokatani, and I had been taken to see it by this old man who, who was offering it to the, who said that it was a very beautiful place, it wasn't, it was, it was It was, had been, he'd had this dream that he'd like to do something for writers and artists and there were ten acres of land and the, the house had been designed for artists and to, mm. to have studios in and you could, have t you could have slept about 30 people there at a time. There were outhouses and so forth and he'd been a, a sort of a informal sort of patron of the arts. He had yeah. money, he'd realised yeah. a dream but his wife was going blind and the place was for sale. He couldn't yeah. stay there. And he would say, he said that if it could be used for the, a particular purpose, he would be happy to sell it to the nation for $250,000. And I felt that I should tell somebody. Yeah. I didn't know whether there was any merit in it at all, really, at the time. But I th felt I should tell somebody. So I rang somebody in the Arts Council and they said, well, it's interesting you should say this. It's, it sounds like a project that Michael Bassett might be looking for. So I was invited to go and see Michael Bassett. And I told him about it. And he said, wonderful idea. He had some of his advisors there. He said, wonderful, wonderful. We should have this. It's too good to mm. let it go. And I said, well, I think that there should be more writers involved in such a decision. And he said, well, yes, we should. We should have a meeting. This was on a Wednesday. We should have a meeting next Wednesday. And we should get some more writers. And he said, I'll fly a few people in. <laughs> he said, we'll have Margaret Mahi and Morris G and Loris. And of course, we must have Carl. <laughs> we'll have Terry Sturm. We'll have somebody from the Arts Council. And uh, he said, we'll have a meeting. They'll all come. Well, in fact, Morris G and I and Carl and Terry Stern were the ones who went, Loris and Margaret couldn't come. Yeah. And at that meeting, I said I didn't think that it should be um, something that was a decision that was made just by this group of people, that it, I felt, you know, that if yeah. that sort of money was available, it should be decided by more of the wider writing community. And he said, 
quite right, quite right too. So he said, how about a deputation of you going to this island and having a look at it? Oh, I, I, had, I had a very bad dose of diarrhoea to tell you the truth that day. What a, day, what a dose of diarrhoea could do. And I wasn't feeling very well and I said, well, I wouldn't go. And I also said that I didn't think, you know, that I'd come up with the idea and I didn't really want to be landed with, you know, the yeah, responsibility for that decision. So he said, how about Carl... Terry Sturm and Rosemary Wildblood, but I hope you won't. I mean, Rosemary Wildblood and Terry Sturm, I've tended to leave out of the equation as the years have passed. And he said, in fairness, he did say to me, would I like to go? So I said, no, I don't want to go. So they all agreed, and they talk, we talked about ringing up, and I was going to make the arrangements. Have you been there? I'd been there. there. Yeah. I'd been there. So you knew. And I said yeah. that I would be the intermediary with the old man. Yeah. And we had a glass of, of sherry. We all shook hands and said, this is great. Yeah. When we got outside, there was kind of a huge anxiety amongst the group. Terry Sturm and Carl said, we've got to talk, we've got to talk. We have to, we have to go and talk about this. And I said, well, what's to talk about? I'm sorry, I'm feeling really awful and I want to go home. We'll go and have a drink. We'll all go and have a drink. We had a drink, a very strange drink. I don't, and I can't... None of this matters mm. terribly much. I left anyway, still believing that the group were going to do what we'd shaken hands on. Had a drink in, up, in, yeah. in the minister's office in front of a number of his senior advisers. Time passed and, and a date was set and I let Internal Affairs know when it was to be. And when I, and he waited and waited and waited and nobody came. And about three weeks passed and I rang Jane Komenek in Internal Affairs and I said, look, do you know what's going on? And there was a pause and she said, yes, I do, sort of. And yeah. I said, what's happening? And she said, well, I don't, I can't exactly say. I said, are they not going? And she said, no, they're not. Um, so I said, why? And she said, oh, I can't, I don't, I can't really. I'm just, I'm sorry. She said, I'm really sorry about this. Um, anyway, in the meantime, what, what we later learned was that Carl and Bassett had, had formed a, an alliance and Bassett had to buy a place overseas and Bassett gave Carl virtually a blank cheque to go around the world looking at houses. He went to Australia and to London and had about three lovely weeks just looking at houses, doing a real estate thing. All of this was going on without us knowing what was happening, but we began to become aware and there was a meeting which Carl has always used as his alibi and this has been one of the, the cause of one of the great divisions in, in the Society of Authors. Which I, for which I have huge sadness, really, was that a group of them, which included Chris Pugsley and Silla McQueen and a few other people who I like and respect, but he talked to them in a tea break and said, you mustn't breathe a word of this to anybody, but this is a great opportunity. And i since been told, Nora Shadbot was the chair at the time, I've been told by a number of people that it was not part of the formal discussion, it was simply part of the tea break. But he used that, it was to, to use that subsequently as his 
And raison d'etre, if you like, for, for saying that he had the support of Penn to, to go ahead with it. Rumours were starting to circulate around yeah. town. People were becoming very anxious. I wrote to the minister. The minister wrote to me and said, in very, very strange way, that if you, if you don't be quiet about this, there'll be grave consequences. Um, that's not exactly the wording, yeah, but it was equally heavy. And, um, and the letter had personal handwritten on it. And one of the things that's been disputed subsequently, of course, is whether I had the right to disclose the contents of a letter that had personal written on it to me. Because I did later disclose it when, um, at the end of, on the 31st of December, I was rung by the minister's office and thanked for my part in securing the flat in Bloomsbury. I said I didn't. I don't. I. I. I don't know about a flat in Bloomsbury, which was not entirely truthful mm. because I had heard rumours, mm. but I hadn't been told. And they said, "Well, uh, the minister has asked me to thank you." And I said, "How can he thank me for something I haven't given him?" Well, it's your part in it. I said, "No, I disclaim any part in a in a flat in Bloomsbury." And so that later that day I was rung by the newspapers and this has also been very much misconstrued I think. There's the notion that I went to the newspapers. I know who it was in the minister's office who leaked it to the papers, what had happened. But it wasn't me that went to the newspapers, the newspapers came to me and I said, they said, what do you think about this gift to, the, to authors by Bassett? And I said, things along the lines of, I don't know about the gift itself, but it's not actually one which is has, which all writers have been consulted, and there was something else on the table. And of course it was front page on the evening Yes, I remember it very vividly. Mm. Yes. Personally it was difficult for you, wasn't it? It became oh, very personal. Very, very personal. Very, very difficult indeed. I... I don't know myself, and I've said this a few times, I don't know whether the house on the island would have been the best thing. It may not have been. But, but somewhere in the heart of Penn, something seemed quite corrupt seemed to have happened. I'm, I'm quite a sucker. All I had wanted was an assurance that this was the best thing and that the majority of writers wanted this, to, would, you know, that, that they had a choice to make it, and that was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. When the television programme, which I was happy to be a party to, because I really wanted to try and get the truth out there, when Ross Stevens made the television programme, I certainly did not know about letters, the letter which appeared in that program in which it was revealed that Carl had written to Bassett and said um, virtue might be its own reward but all the same thank you very much, May I, I wonder if I might be the first person to be to stay in the flat and the correspondence between the two men made it very clear that they'd actually gone to buy themselves something for, the, for themselves in favour of the thing in New Zealand, and this is probably no longer 
pertinent. I mean, other things may have replaced it, but in favour of the place in New Zealand was the idea that a se an art centre could have been set up which could have been useful for ex international exchange writers, whether it was that place or yeah. another place in New Zealand is, is sort of irrelevant, but I had been involved in setting up, helping to set up the Australia-New Zealand exchange, which, which was another issue mm. that in the time that I was president, and which has gone on in mm. different ways. We wanted to, we would have people over here, but we had nowhere for them to go except in the universities. Mm. We had a man called Barry Hill here who was the first exchange person. I think Rachel McAlpine had gone to Australia and he had come here. And he had lived in Warehouse and he'd been at Victoria and he'd been desperately unhappy mm. and felt that he hadn't, you know, there was no real place for him and, and so on and so on and so forth. And it just did seem that in, in terms of international exchanges, we could have used this, this yeah. you know, or so something similar. Mm. 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 So I think, you know, it seemed to me that it was broader than just our mm. local writers having a place to go and write. I hated it. I hated the whole thing. Mm. I just loathed the whole drama. Have you stayed involved since that time, Ms. Ackley, or oh, not affected? Exactly. No, not exactly. Morris Shadbot resigned. Mm. Mm. Um, and and it was all it was terribly personal. Mm. Um, we were Loris and I had joined forces, and there are others who are mm. involved. And um, I don't know how much they would want to have their names, but mm. quite high-profile writers who'd actually gone and got the stuff through the Official Information mm. Act and so forth. That that I I had I didn't know that they were doing this mm. at all. Um, so quite, a, yeah, so it was all a difficult... It was all terribly, terribly difficult, but we carried the can for the mm. whole thing, really. Mm. Mm. I'm a bit of a sucker. If that we had gone to the island, and I should have gone to the island, or I should have remained part of that group, I can see that. If I had gone and, and seen it and, and with them and they mm. had said we don't think it's suitable, or, yeah. or even if they had gone and s reported back and said we don't think it's suitable. Um, because the money had been offered to, to, put, to take them there, they could have, they could have taken a day out and, and, gone to, and gone to the place. It was no big deal. Um, if they'd said, no, we don't think that's the best way to spend the money, and this is a way we, we think collectively after talking it mm. over mm. there might be more in it for writers and we're going to go and talk to the authors and pen about about you know yeah. what's the best thing to do yeah. I truly I didn't have enough invested in it personally to have made all that fuss mm. Mm. but I actually really don't like people telling me lies mm. Mm. I don't like people saying they'll do something and there were some things that could have been in its favour and they should have been weighed up. Do you think, was the PEN membership involved? Do you think it's got quite big now? Was the PEN membership involved and were they being responsive to that kind of invitation? Well, I think so. so I mean, I mm. think that, I mean, obviously there are people who are at that meeting who, although we've continued, I've continued to have friendships with them and to, to work mm. with them, have always thought that I was wrong. Mm. Um, people like Chris Pugsley. Mm. Um, 
simply thought I was wrong. Mm. But collectively, they were interested enough to be involved in the discussion. Right. Yeah. So yes, yes. I, oh yes, I'm mm. quite sure. Mm. But I don't know whether there's part of what I see as a sort of devolution away from pen and the society of authors being influential voices going mm. on at that stage. Um, Jenny Patrick was the um, chair of the Creative Arts Council. Mm -hmm. I hesitate to say a great deal about it, but she was totally of the opinion that that we're a lot of naughty children. And I was quite shocked to go to something where she gave a talk to the book council, and she got out a whole lot of little stick diagrams to show how and put them up on a on a flannel thing. <laughs> And so saying, now this is, and had children with their hands up, shaking, and, and so, you know, if people, if people complain and make a fuss like this, you're not going to get money from the government and so forth. And, you know, you, writers should learn to behave better, and then they start running to the media and so on and so forth. And I stood up at the end and I said, I think you're astonishingly naive if you think that the media would not have known about this. I said, you know, you think that you think that I went to the to the to the media. I said the media came to me and the reason that they knew to come to me was because because I said people inside Bassett's office at the time knew that something something was going on that shouldn't be going on. And they told the media, and if you really think any differently, you are naive. Mm. And she and I have never been particularly good friends since, yes. Yeah. And I think that she was one of the people, and quite a group of people, who formed battle lines, if you like. Most of them don't belong to Penn. Right, right. And they have their own sort of thing, and they run the Festival of the Arts, and, and mm. so on and so forth. But they don't see themselves as, as some of them belong to Penn, some of them don't, mm. as a society of authors. Mm. But I see that as having been a very divisive line. Yeah. And most of them, I think, are people who have, in some way or another, contacts or links with Carl, who mm. has, but there's been a big need seen to rehabilitate him, as it were. And that's fine, I mm. wish him no harm. Mm. I've, I've just done. The, the collection of love stories and I included a story of his in it. Um, I was quite surprised that he mm. accepted the invitation to be in it. Mm. Um, because I think that if you're fair and scrupulous, the issues are not, you know, when you do an anthology, are not about what sort of yes. quarrels you've had. But I, I minded very much the things that, you know, the, the comments that went on like, were vindictive, mm. spiteful women who mm. hadn't succeeded, and mm. letters from his members of his family to to Loris and myself, mm. saying that you know we were simply inferior writers, and it was it was all because we couldn't write as as if we were sort of some sort of literary all blacks who <laughs> who who were having you know had were fight having a competition. Most of the men, I imagine. Um, no, no, well, there were members of, the, of Carl's family wrote to us in these, mm. along these lines too. Mm. Um, no, there were women too who were very angry with, with us. Mm. It was a horrible business. But anyway, afterwards, when it was all over, yep. 
I stepped, Loris and I stepped back, okay? We said enough is enough, we've gone far enough. Neither of us had any more public comment and then about a year, it was nearly a year later, that Graham Lee came in, he was the first minister for the arts for the National Party and his first act was to sell the, sell the flat and I think that that's highly regrettable action. I think it served none of us well. Mm. It was, um, it drove a wedge, if there had been a wedge before, it, the, it, it simply flew apart at mm. that point. And I think that that punitive sort of fundamentalist approach to, to writers from the national government has lasted for the entire nine years of the national government. And I can only say, I hope to God that um, that we that that it, mm. that it something better will come out of, of, of the new government. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in direct terms of writers, mm -hmm. because that thing of Lee's was a direct, I believe, a direct sort of influence on the shape of all national party dealings that have gone on with writers since then. Mm and it has served to reinforce the division that came out of that issue. It's much bigger than, than Carl Steadon versus mm. Fiona Kidman and Loris Edmund. Mm. It really is much bigger. It became a major political issue, which to my, in my mind has never been resolved. No. Mm -hmm. It served up power, I, in my view, to one group of people mm. and, and took it away from others. Mm. And. No, I haven't really been involved in mm. pens very much or Society of Authors, except that I did go along to, to the meetings as a, as a supporter. Mm. But I have thought it better not to be involved in the decision-making process. I haven't wanted to have any more contribution to, to, to division within the, the mm. organisation. Um, and I, I have been put up for committees from time to time, which I feel I could have made a useful contribution to, but I have always been turned down. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I'm mm. sad about it. Mm. I'm sad about what happened. But the other th more positive thing, the more positive thing I think that did come out of it was, while all of this was happening, as a measure of protest against the high-handed tactics that had been taken by by Bassett instead. 29 writers signed a petition asking for a view of, of, of what had happened. And I think, I really think that it was um, one of those interesting points in which to, people declare themselves in a certain sort of way. I mean, people who signed the petition which I suppose might be said were the, them versus us, if you like. But the people who signed the petition were people like Patricia Grace, Whitty and Myra, a lot of the Maori writers, Albert Went. Mm. Um, I think it was a declaration of ourselves as New Zealand yeah. writers versus a sort of Eurocentrism. Mm. Mm. I think 
I think it made us more certain within ourselves of what we represented in terms of what we perceive as fairness and justice and anti-corruption. And of course there are those who disagree with us. And I think there are things to be said on both sides. been listening to Fiona Kidman and Alison Gray on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps others find the NZSA. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Notturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. <laughs>